Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Okay, so this is the Mental Models Podcast, and uh, we want to thank everybody for tuning in today. We're going to talk a little bit more about the macro and the business cycle. Uh, I'm going to start off by saying what we're going to talk about today is probably not very useful to you, right? (laughs) You can probably not make any money uh, uh, with this. And and so I'm giving you this cautionary tale uh, that uh, I think it's important context that it can help you understand why these things work the way they do. Um, but trying to draw something out of it that's predictive uh, is dangerous and should probably be avoided. But as an incentive to listen to this particular episode, these are factors in the macro that people do discuss a great deal and they get tremendous media coverage. So uh, being aware of them is somewhat helpful, even if you're only being aware of them in order to intentionally discount them. Yeah, I think that's right. So uh, I want to lead with this discussion, we're going to just talk about a cycle and how a cycle works. And one of the reasons to do this, I'll just interject a bit about the brain. Our brains are pattern matching in their nature. So we're always looking for uh, what's going to be predictive of the next uh, situation, the next reward, the next punishment, the next source of danger. And uh, when you have a brain as complex as, as humans, we can start to extrapolate out in time. And this gets us into tricky terrain because uh, the, the, our sense of timing is very governed by uh, the more immediate, the more accurate we tend to be, the more speculative, the further out in time, the, of course, the, the more complicated the situation. And what we do with complicated situations um, is begin to, we talk of schemas. And what a schema is, is kind of a, a big chunk of knowledge that tends to be your your template. It's like the average of that particular situation. So we have a schema for, um, for example, a uh, sporting event. Y- you expect that the crowd comes in. There's, there's usually some ceremonial ev- events in the beginning. It's going to play out according to the time frame, and, and, and the crowd will react. And this doesn't describe any one event. I'm thinking generically of like the World Cup. That could be any World Cup game. You sort of start with that kind of pattern. Right, and the schema is is kind of the anchor point, and so that's I think a good lead-in as well for the macro economy. It's helpful to have a general schema about the macro. Of course, the details are going to vary from time to time. I think it's just helpful though to to set this up as this could be kind of your guide, your schema for the macro economy, and then you can move up or down how important or how interested or how much you want to think about it from there. Yeah, and I, th- I think I mentioned before in a previous podcast that we've done uh, that it's very dangerous to try to look at the macro and make investment decisions on that basis because most of the time people get it wrong. And when you get it right, for instance, just the simple math of, expansions tend to be five to seven years long, okay? And contractions tend to be nine months to 18 months long, okay? So most of the time, you're better off 
just being positive and being bullish and optimistic as opposed to looking for the dark clouds on the horizon. It's a better rule of thumb to go with. It is a better rule of thumb to go with. And if you're always looking for the recession around the corner, uh, you end up making financial decisions that are going to be wrong most of the time. So another good starting point here, as someone less uh, versed in the business cycle, my, I've always felt like my mental model of it is kind of a mess and the media coverage tends to distort it a great deal and emphasize different factors that I, I have a hard time calibrating what their importance is or what their immediacy is. Uh, Ray Dalio has a uh, excellent video that he's posted about this. George, maybe that's a good starting point. Yeah, I think so. It's called How the Economic Machine Works. And uh, it is a beautiful illustration of how short-term business cycles are within longer-term debt cycles. Uh, the short-term business cycles are anywhere from you know, five to 10 years long. Uh, and they're like little small wiggly lines over long arches of debt cycles, which tend to be about 50 years long. So there's a secular and a cyclical uh, movement over time. And Dalio captures that notion uh, very uh, accurately. Kind of the, the basic points are that uh, economic growth is largely associated with the expansion of money and credit within uh, the economy. And if you think about what's more important, there's a lot more credit than there is money within the economy. So I want to say uh, in the, the entire United States uh, monetary base, of actual cash, you can think of this as cash or actual actual money, is about $7 trillion, whereas the amount of credit is somewhere in the neighborhood of $60 trillion. So almost a tenfold delta in the amount of credit relative to the amount of cash that's in the economy. So the expansion and contraction of credit is much more important to the expansion and contraction of the economy than uh, the, just the plain monetary base. Now, what does it all mean? So let's start at or the end of a contraction. So the end, at the end of a recession, what you have is a high level of unemployment and a low level of capacity utilization, and you have tight uh, credit conditions. People are not lending because they lost money before, right? Banks lost money. So the Fed has stepped in, the Fed steps in, and they lower interest rates, which lowers the cost of money uh, and encourages lending, right? Because the cost for a bank to be able to borrow money and then put it back into the economy is less. So uh, what that does is where, to the extent that there's economic opportunity, uh, those people that have the best economic opportunities out there, they have the ability to get credit and then to provide, you know, a uh, service that's within demand. Uh, and often there are uh, government programs that can be enacted uh, to stimulate demand as well. Things become cheaper. Assets become cheaper in the context of a, re of a recession or a downturn. Uh, so maybe there are people that are make, starting to make investments to take advantage of low prices. As that happens, uh, they hire more uh, workers. And those workers 
who previously did not have income, they now have income, and they uh, then participate in the economy. They buy more things. As they buy more things, uh, then there's more economic activity, which then opens up even more investment opportunities, leads to uh, more borrowing, more expansion uh, and growth, and you get this self-reinforcing loop uh, that grow, where growth leads to more growth. A good way to think about GDP or growth of the economy, there's some very simple components that you can break it down to. It is essentially hours work and productivity. That's it. Those two elements. And hours work, you can get to that number by looking at the percentage of the population that is working and the size of the uh, population and the, the number of hours per worker. So we can expand by growing the population and thereby increasing uh, the number of people that can work and increasing the participation rate. When you're at, in a recession, there's a lot of people that are out of work. So you have a large percentage of the population that is not working and they're not contributing to GDP. When we get to the end of an expansion, you have a very low unemployment rate. So a lot of that GDP growth that happens within an expansion is simply people that were out of work that then go to work. You have growth of a population that can increase the workforce as well. That usually comes from a few different things. It comes from how late do people retire, uh, how uh, many new people enter the workforce through birth, and then how much immigration you have. And so these are particularly tricky factors because with the changing demographics of our society, it's not as if that's always a predictable number. Well, it's, I mean, it, it's pretty predictable because it's real slow, right? You know, you, the changes in demographics are a very slow, monotonous thing. And demographics are destiny, right? If you look at... It's a very quotable phrase. It's a very quotable phrase. It's not, it's not my quote. I didn't, I didn't actually come up with it. But they really do kind of set the stage. Uh, and if you think of a lot, of a lot of developed countries today, one thing that has changed from what you've seen in the past, if you've seen a real slowdown in the growth of population, right? Population growth mainly takes, places, takes place in uh, the Middle East, the East, and in Africa. Africa has, I think, the largest growth of population globally. That's true. I was just thinking of the, you always hear about the increasing age of retirement or whether people are even retiring. And it's almost like the, the advice, the common sense advice now is uh, retirement's a bad idea because your brain will decline after that. I, I hear that a lot in my field, that you just keeping working gives you some edge. I think that's right. And I think it's interesting because we have a lot of policy decisions that have been made in the past, like Social Security. Social Security was originally uh, structured for people that were 65 years and older. Uh, and the reality is, is people are living a lot longer than that. Uh, the, the notion for Social Security, one of the things that was nice about it is a lot of people died before they reached 65. So the financial burden wasn't as significant for the government. Now people are living much, be much further beyond that age. Yeah, that's more of a detail, I suppose. Uh, so we left off, though, with the, with the standard scheme of the business cycle. It was 
economy is really heated up, lots and lots of people are working, what happens next? Okay, so more and more people go to work, but eventually you get to the point where the unemployment rate uh, gets uh, quite low. And that part of growth can't actually, you can't contribute anymore, right? You're not going to see uh, significant incremental growth coming out of capacity utilization in the workforce. It's going to just basically be that you have some uh, growth in the population. Uh, but uh, you can have increasing productivity. So every hour work yield, uh, that yields more of an outcome. When you get late into the cycle, you tend to get the peak out when you have very low unemployment, uh, that you've had a lot of uh, growth in capital investment and things of that nature to be able to anticipate that future growth, right? The growth in GDP that you've had as that unemployment rate has gotten lower and the capacity uh, is actually too much. You have too much capacity uh, for the amount of future growth that you're going to have. Uh, at the same point in time, costs for all sorts of inputs like oil, like copper, all those things come up to a relatively high level. You tend to have, you start to see inflation, and that's when the Fed starts to raise interest rates. We talked previously in our other podcast about inversion of the yield curve, and usually what happens is the Fed will raise the short end of the curve. Uh, and it gets to a point where that short end of the curve is higher than the long end of the curve. So, you know, the three-month rate, interest rate, will be higher than the 10-year. Uh, and that tends to happen before a recession. You, it tends to predict that you're going to have a recession at, at that point. So money gets tighter. When money gets tighter, then it means that the incremental investment that someone would make uh, would be less likely to occur. It's also more expensive because you have to pay more in wages. You're paying more for the commodities that you need to be able to produce whatever it is you're producing. Uh, your costs are higher. Uh, so eventually profitability and, and profit margins get squeezed and weaker players that maybe have overextended themselves because they've taken advantage of cheaper debt, uh, when they come to have to refinance, they can't do it, so they bust. And then what do they do when they bust? They fire employees or they try to cut costs along the way. Then unemployment starts to go up. And then you get that what you had was a self-reinforcing cycle of more people having jobs, putting money back into the economy, creating more opportunity for other people to people that then tighten their belts. They don't spend as much. Uh, and there's not more money going back into the economy. There's less which leads to more layoffs, right? More people that lose their jobs because there's not as much demand that's within the economy. So as there's less demand, there's less jobs, you end up having that you, you, going back and then increasing the, le the rate of unemployment, uh, which sets the stage for the next expansion because then labor becomes cheaper, the Fed lowers interest rate, rates and the and credit is more available uh, then commodity prices come down at the same point in time in the backdrop the population continues to grow right uh, which means that there is still growth uh, in terms of the number of people that are out there uh, and 
eventually, and prices come down for all sorts of assets. So people start putting money to work again, buying these, you know, these opportunities where they see that they can buy borrowing cheap for some sort of asset that's going to have some sort of a yield uh, that is in excess of the cost of their debt. Uh, and then the cycle starts again. They start hiring people. Those people have jobs. As they have jobs, they put more money back into the economy. That then creates uh, more opportunity for others. And we go from having a very high unemployment rate for that employment rate to start ticking up again. And it will continue to tick down again, right? So you get you have fewer and fewer people that are unemployed. Uh, and as that happens, that's more economic growth. And, and you know, that expansion continues as credit is available until you get to the point where it's tight again and you don't have the ability to continue to grow. Wow. So there's really a lot of predictability there. Uh, if you can sort of read between the lines of, it's not just a cloud of factors, but rather an interactive set of features that uh, you can start to grapple with what might happen next. Of course, the timing on all this is really what everyone's trying to predict on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, and that's really the tricky aspect. Yeah, that's why uh, those two indicators that I mentioned before, I think, are very helpful. Uh, looking for an inversion of the yield curve, because that always precedes a recession. Um, it does. It's not always the case that an inversion will lead to a recession, uh, but if it's deep and it's long, the inversion, then uh, that is predictive. It's more predictive. Uh, and then a spike in weekly jobless claims, which seems to suggest that you're getting to that point where people are losing their jobs uh, because of tighter credit conditions. So, you know, there are some indicators that you can look at there to, to, that may lead you to be more cautious. Uh, but these factors are also always changing. So the economy, what I described, that that expansion uh, and contraction of the economic cycle, that was perhaps it's more muted now than it has been. So if we look at our current economic circumstance, you don't have tremendously high uh, commodity prices, though you have a very low unemployment rate. Wage growth has been somewhat muted. We see wage growth. I mean, it is growing faster than it has been in the past. And the economy does look like it's relatively tight with respect to unemployment, but not so much where, and you haven't had a huge amount of investment where, you know, there's been this massive overexpansion. When you have a slow growth environment, which is pretty much what this cycle has been, it can go on for a lot longer because you don't have the same level of heating up, the same level of inflation. Inflation is always a predictor of uh, the, the next recession. If you could just understand what inflation is going to do, you can pretty much understand uh, what is going to happen with respect to the economy. Because once the economy gets hot, then the cost of credit becomes much higher, and that leads to the next recession. Excellent. All right. Very well put. And uh, that, that enhances my mental model of the business cycle quite a lot. Uh, but of course, there's a lot of uh, very specific details that, that apply at different times uh, throughout uh, history. How do we want to wrap this one up? Yeah. So I, I would say that uh, whatever you take from what I've shared with you uh, and what Ray Dalio shares uh, in his description of how the economic machine works, I would be very careful in trying to use it to extrapolate uh, what's going to happen with respect to your investment returns. It is very difficult to do. I mean, you can look at it and you can have a sense, 
Uh, and maybe that leads you to be a little bit more cautious in the types of investments. Perhaps you shy away from cyclicals towards the latter stages of an ex economic expansion, places like where we are right now. Uh, but in my experience, I've never seen people actually consistently make money trying to call the cycle. So I would be very cautious about it. I think it's helpful to have a schema, to have a picture of how the economy works in your mind so that you're not as likely to overreact to negative news. Uh, you may see something that develops like Brexit or uh, the, uh, you know, the threat of Greece leaving the European Union uh, or Chinese tariffs uh, that may rattle the market in the short term. A lot of times those are opportunities to take advantage of. You know, I think if you can keep your, your focus on uh, the fact that you're going to need to see an inversion of the yield curve, you're going to need to see a spike in weekly jobless claims uh, before you'll actually see a recession, that should be able to give you some confidence to continue to be active in the market, uh, even in the face of some pretty scary headlines. Yeah, there's definitely a, uh, a bias there and a a challenge that we, we tend to overinterpret uh, a particular pattern. We start to expect certain things to happen. It's a very complex world, as you mentioned. We have listeners overseas who, uh, you know, we've focused mostly on the U.S. economy. These would likely apply in other countries as well, but they're interactive in some sense. Uh, so, so there'll be differences there too. Uh, we will link to the Ray Dalio video. If you visit the show notes at mentalmodelspodcast.com, uh, you can go there to find that. Um, and also, we have a YouTube channel, which we uh, recently launched with more information about bias and investing. And uh, we thank you very much for listening. Yes, thank you. And we, we really do appreciate your support. Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe and thank you for listening.